welcome to The Well Podcast. We hope that this message will help you grow in your faith and give you practical ways to strengthen your relationships. To find out more, visit thewell.ca. And today I'll be reading from Luke 4. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He taught in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. And he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, and recovery of sight for the blind to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him, and he began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Then he went down to Capernaum, a town in Galilee, and on the Sabbath began to teach the people. They were amazed at his teaching, because his message had authority. Jesus left the synagogue and went to the home of Simon. Now Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever, and they asked Jesus to help her. So he bent over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. She got up at once and began to wait on them. When the sun was setting, The people brought to Jesus all who had various kinds of sickness, and laying his hands on each one, he healed them. Moreover, demons came out of many people, shouting, You are the Son of God! But he rebuked them, and would not allow them to speak, because they knew he was the Christ. At daybreak, Jesus went out to a solitary place, The people were looking for him, and when they came to where he was, they tried to keep him from leaving them. But he said, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also, because that is why I was sent. And he kept on preaching in the synagogues of Judea. This is the word of the Lord. Welcome to Church at the Well. In uh, recent weeks, we've been talking about the fact that we are a community of people who are desperately in need of good news. Uh, And a few weeks ago, I said to you that for for many of us, we might distill that kind of good news to, do we have a vaccine? Um, And, you know, can we go back to the way things were? And and especially when we do, will the economy and the jobs and all of that um, bounce back? Will we be able to avoid a recession? Or even there's been words like, you know, the Great Depression and things like that. So the good news would be, do we have a vaccine? Can we go back to the way things were? And will everything, you know, the economy bounce back and even surge forward? And that is, would certainly be good news. But as I said to you a few weeks ago, the problem is it wouldn't be enough good news. Because long before um, January 2020 hit, we were a community and and a a nation and a world, and even the worlds inside of us were not okay. There were, as we said last week, there is beautiful things in us and around us and also broken things. That we need more than just a vaccine or an an economic uh, rebound 
if, if, if it's really going to be good enough news for us. And we're journeying through this series called History Maker. And our premise is that, you know what, over top of all of history, even though uh, there's so much uh, difficulty and brokenness and, and challenges in history, over top of all of history is the word, the title, good news, because of what Jesus has done because of who he is, what he said, how he lived, what he did. It was why the original biographers of his life, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we have four of them, entitled their accounts, Good News. And not just good news because of something this or something that or something within those accounts, but it basically was the good news of Jesus Christ, that Jesus himself is good news. And they, they proclaim that kind of all over the world. And our understanding, our premise for this series is saying it wasn't, it's not just something we look back on in history, like sort of biographical history, but we're saying, no, his story has changed my story and your story. His life has changed my life and has the potential to change yours as well. And so we are journeying through this, and actually, so one of the things we're doing during the series is we're taking time to take questions. So if you have questions as I'm talking, the number's going to be there up on the screen. You can text them in, and we take a little bit of time near the end of every message to really um, address those. But I think one of the things that um, we can observe that actually the church has done over the years. And so if you are, uh, if you didn't grow up in the church, if you come from a different religious background or you didn't have any church background, you got to go, hey, not my fault. No, this one is definitely pinned on the church, people who grew up in the church. And if I can say people like me, pastors, um, that we have done something actually to the good news that in a sense we would uh, be threatened to do with sort of today's world is that we have shrunk it down, that it's, that we've made it small and too thin to the point that we would say, oh, it's actually not enough enough good news the way we have talked about it. And by that, I mean this word, these words good news come from the transliterated uh, Greek word euangelion to mean, to mean gospel, which is why maybe you've heard that term before, is what the, the writers refer to the gospel of Jesus Christ. It means good news. But we as the church historically and, and recently, and by recently I mean the last couple of hundred years, have taken it and, and for what it was and actually have shrunk it down so that it's too small. It's not enough good news. And, and here's what I mean by that. If somebody were to ask you as you were growing up, or maybe you grew up in a tradition where you say, well, what's, what's the good news? Well, the good news is, first actually starts with bad news, you're a sinner, but good news, Jesus has died on the cross for your sins, and if you believe in him, you will go to heaven one day when you die. And this is what we have said. Many of us have said, oh, that is the good news. That's what we were told. That is the gospel. When we say something like, have you told that person the gospel? Or we're supposed to share the gospel. Or I heard the gospel. Or that preacher preached the gospel. What we meant was, you know, bad news, you're a sinner. Good news, there's a cross. And if you believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins, you will go to heaven one day. Now, here's why I say that if this is all the good news is, it's actually not enough good news. There's, there's lots of, of problems with this. One is even this word believe, that somehow we think that the good news is a set of statements that if we believe them and say, yes, yes, I believe that, check, yes, then I, then I have received the good news, then I, I have that, and I'm, I'm going to heaven. Um, it also, in a sense, sort of says... Um, well, there's something in history 2,000 years ago, the cross, that if you believe it and it, believe it was for you, it's going to affect maybe, say, 2,000 years from now when you die and go to heaven someday, one day. But this dash in between, 
in between the 2,000 years ago and the someday one day when you die and go to heaven, there's, that's it. There's nothing to be said about that, which is actually how we are living our entire lives. How does that affect this today? That for many of us, we said, oh yeah, that's what we believe the good news. 2,000 years ago, Jesus died on the cross for my sins. If I believe it, then someday, one day when I die, but basically now for the rest of my life, it has no effect. It has no impact. Um, not to mention the fact that if we have reduced the good news to just this, that it basically sort of leaves us as, as people use it, and maybe this was your experience, where it was used as sort of a, a, a threat to make sure you get into heaven because you don't want to go to that other place, you know, with fire and whatever. So it becomes the get out of jail free card or a, a ticket to heaven or fire insurance, as some people say. And essentially, that it'll, that's all it is. And the only time I think about it is when I, you know, maybe think, oh, I might die. But for the most part, this dash is about just trying not to screw it up, try to be a good person because that's probably what God wants you to do. And then you wait for heaven someday, one day. And I would submit to you that if, if that is all the good news is, it's not enough. It's not enough for you. It is not enough to change your life today, right? If it's something that happened 2,000 years ago and something that will someday, one day, and that really just has to do with, do I believe it in my mind? Have I said the words or have I asked Jesus into my heart or I got baptized or whatever that was? But otherwise, in my day-to-day -day life, it doesn't affect how I see my job. It doesn't affect how I see my work. It doesn't affect how I see my friendships. It doesn't affect how I spend my money, what I think about sex and my sex life, how I interact with the people around me. It doesn't, it doesn't help me when I feel purposeless in the job that I'm doing or I have questions about what should I do this or should I do that. It doesn't actually speak to do I have wisdom for the decisions I need to make. It's not enough. If that's all the good news is, that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and you're gonna go to heaven one day, it's not enough for you if that's all it is. Not to say that that isn't really important. In fact, last week we talked about sin and the cross and all of that means, and I would encourage you, we actually didn't even talk about it in sort of a thin way to go back. But this whole series is saying the good news is so much more and you need it to be so much more for you and for those around you. If the good news is simply you're a sinner, if you believe in Jesus dying on the cross of your sins, you're gonna go to heaven one day, it's not enough good news for the people around you. Why? Because the fact that you have a ticket to heaven, how does that help anybody around you? Unless you could try to convince them that maybe they're sinners too, and they need to. And if they don't, and they aren't convinced that they're sinners, well, then we judge them. And in many ways, that's sort of been the bad news record of the church, that the church by and large is seen as, and sometimes has acted as, judge and judgmental people, and basically saying, you know what, do you believe you're a sinner, and that, uh, you know, Jesus died on the cross for your sins? No, I don't. Okay, well then, you know what, you're going to hell, and there's basically an attitude that says, you can go to hell. That is the problem. It's not enough good news. It has not affected and transformed our everyday lives, and therefore, it is actually not good news enough for the people around us, but here's what I want to say, that the good news, there is so much more to it than that. It includes a bunch of that, but so much more. And it is a kind of so much more that not only has the power to transform your life and my life today, every day, that it actually becomes good news for us every day, not just the day that we think we might die. But more than that, that if, if we really embodied this good news as people who say we are Jesus people and the community gathered around Jesus, 
the rest of the world would actually be so blessed that they would say, you know what, we really wish you were more fanatical about this good news, which says no one ever, right? That's actually what a lot of people say. Hey, believe what you want to believe, but don't be so crazily committed to it. When you're crazily committed to it, that's when you get fanatical, and fanatical religious people are bad for the world. And there's lots of reasons why people would look at that and say, yeah, fanaticism is you judge and criticize people who don't believe what you believe. Yeah, we don't want that. But if, if the good news is really all that it is, to be fanatical about it is actually to say, no, this has totally changed my life. And I want to promise you this. If we as people actually committed to this and became more fanatical about it, even if the world didn't agree with us, they would want there to be more of us. They would say, we just wish you would believe it more. We just wish you would be more committed to it than you are. Because if, we, if you did, it would help us too. And so what is that good news? You know, we talked about last week about sin and what does sin even mean? And we actually didn't start there. We started with love, which was the week before, so I'd encourage you to be tracking through. But interestingly, when we look at, and we're, we're using Luke's biography of Jesus, Jesus is something really early on in Luke's gospel, actually that was at the beginning of his public ministry when people actually started to write about what he was doing, that actually is, is, gives us a clue to how much more good news there is. And yet, quite frankly, even as we read it, we don't totally understand it. Jesus said this, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also, because that is why I was sent. The good news of the kingdom. Do you know the word sin and salvation is used about 18 times in the Gospel of Luke? And the word kingdom, mostly by Jesus, used almost 50 times. More than two, two times the number. And, yet, and he actually used it in the context of the gospel, the gospel of the kingdom. And yet, if, to be honest, if I asked you, did anyone ever tell you when you were growing up about the gospel of the kingdom? Or if I ever said to you, what's the gospel? I doubt most of us would have used this word kingdom at all. Jesus used it twice, more than twice as much as sin and salvation. He talked about it as the good news of the kingdom. Not only that, he says this, that is why I was sent. Some of us grew up in traditions, or maybe you heard this, or maybe even I said this at one point, Jesus came to die. That's why he came to die. And now, now his death is a huge part of what this kingdom actually means, and we'll find out about that. But Jesus, we say, oh, Jesus came to die. That's why he came to earth. Jesus says, no, I actually came to proclaim the good news of the kingdom. And to be honest, you and I have no idea what that means. And yet within this statement, this idea of the kingdom, actually it was what presents so much good news for us. Now, the, the word kingdom, um, immediately for Jesus' original people and for us maybe brings to mind things like government, politics, monarchies, thrones, ruling powers, um, you know, uh, military uh, might, martial law, all of those kinds of things. And in fact, the people in Jesus' time, when he began talking about the kingdom, they wanted it to be that. I mean, they believed that their biggest problem was the fact that Rome was sort of a Roman occupation of Palestine and was crushing them under their heel. And so they anticipated and were looking for this day that a king would come and lead and overthrow an empire and, and deal and bring new government and new policy and, new, um, and take the power for themselves, and that because that's where they thought the good news needed to be. And yet Jesus continually said this to them. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. Now that, that maybe makes us think, oh, he was talking about heaven someday, one day. No, what he meant was my kingdom is not like 
the kingdoms of this world. It's something else. It's something totally different. And yet they didn't totally understand what it was. And so Jesus, as he comes to explain what the kingdom of God is, they actually need to understand, wait, why? what is this kingdom? And why is it actually good news? And how is it actually different than the way we would envision? Because in our day and time, we go, oh yeah, kingdoms, government, Paul, like forget that. And when we hear kingdom of God, kingdom of Jesus, we think holy war. We think, uh, oh no, like we think all of the ills that had been done in the name of Jesus as church and state come together, as true postmodern people. We distrust all of that. And so the kingdom of Jesus not only is maybe unintelligible to us, if anything, it's got a negative connotation. And yet we need to take what Jesus' word says seriously, even to the people then 2,000 years ago. It's a kingdom, and I'm a king, but it's not of this world. It's not like the kingdoms of the world. And so Jesus, as he begins, and we're looking at chapter uh, four, and that was read for you, begins to explain to them what the kingdom of God is like. And it says he actually goes into his hometown synagogue. So Jerusalem was, was sort of the center of Jewish political and religious life, and that's where the temple was. But in all the other towns, just like Jesus' hometown in Nazareth, there were synagogues, local places of worship. And oftentimes, teachers from the local area were invited to come and read scripture and teach. And Jesus, on one occasion, is invited into his hometown synagogue to actually teach. And he chooses, says he asks for the scroll from Isaiah. Now, Isaiah was Israel's most famous prophet. If you actually look in the library of scripture, Isaiah's book is the longest one of all of the prophets. And the reason that Israel knew it so well was it was at a time, and he spoke at a time in their history when things were really difficult. And he kept talking about a day when... A day in a person when, when the anointed one, which is what the, where the word Messiah comes, God's chosen leader and ruler would come and establish all of the things that they were longing for, would come and free them and set them up as a kingdom. And so Jesus deliberately chooses this scroll, you know, as to the beginning of his public life. And it says he opened it to Isaiah chapter 61. And he reads this from the words of the prophet 700 years ago. He reads this. And he says, God's spirit, and three times use the word on me. He says, God's spirit is on me. God's spirit has chosen me. That's what the word anointed means. And God's spirit has sent me. And then he quotes the rest of Isaiah. It says, to do what? To bring good news to the poor. To bring freedom for the prisoners. To bring sight for the blind. And freedom for the oppressed. And Jesus, as he's reading that, and that they would have heard, and certainly Luke is, is helping us in the rest of his gospel to understand what Jesus is describing these groups of people that he has been chosen to go and meet and bring good news to the poor, the prisoners, the blind, and the oppressed. We're not meant to just see them as sort of going, oh, he was talking about people who were economically disadvantaged or who were below the poverty line, although ec economic disadvantage was a big part of being poor. The, the poor, the prisoners, the blind, and the oppressed, that had double meaning, um, both in terms of physically, but also spiritually, but also relationally and socially. Um, Jesus, and Luke in particular, um, describes Jesus' ministry as one that was addressing the way the social order went, the hierarchy. In, 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 in first century um, 
uh, Palestine and in the Near Eastern world in the time when Jesus was speaking and Luke was writing, it was a, there was a very deliberate pecking order. There was a few people at the top who were the monarchs, who, who were the privileged, who were um, wealthy, and then the landowners who were also wealthy, and then kind of down to a middle class. And then it narrowed again down to sort of the, the people who were from less than important families or jobs and, and the, the roles that jobs that you had defined what kind of importance your family had. And then down to the kind of the, not only the poor, but the sick and the sinners and the outcasts. And in this sense, the, it was a world that said, look, if you're wealthy and healthy, that means God's blessing you. That means you're a good person. That means you're a righteous person. That's why you're healthy and wealthy. And so therefore, if you're not healthy and you're not wealthy, that means God's curse is on you. That means you probably deserve it. And then there would be systemic patterns of poverty and unhealth, especially for those who were born, say, blind or lame, unable to walk, the deaf, unable to hear, if you were born with a sickness, it was a kind of saying, oh, this is from the womb. In other words, you deserve this. Like if this is what you were born into, this wasn't an accident or something somebody did to you or they wounded you and you can't see anymore. You were born with this, which means you and your family have the curse of God on you. So for the poor and the prisoners and the blind, they were oppressed by the system they were in. They were oppressed by the belief systems of the people around them. They were cut off relationally and socially. We're saying last week that if you were sick, um, this meant that you were cut off from people. There was an, a kind of a, um, an approach, especially if you had a disease. They didn't know a lot yet about communicable diseases and things like that. And so sick people were always meant to be away from others because they would, a sick person, if you touch them, could connect, contaminate you, not only make you sick, they could contaminate you spiritually. There was this whole idea of polluted and unpolluted. And so it wasn't just that if you were sick, you had to be away from other people. You, you had to be away not only because physically, but socially and spiritually, there was an infection that people were afraid of. And maybe at other times in our lives, we're like, what is that about? Actually, now we can kind of relate to that because I don't, I just have this I never used to worry about germs. And now I have this weird paranoia. It's like we see, like we have to, you know, you're walking down the street and you're six feet apart and like there's this, literally we call it social distancing. And there's a fear of infection or contamination of this thing we can't see that could be on door handles and computer screens and mouses and all that stuff. And there's a, well, this was how they saw the whole world working spiritually, relationally, physically, not just from a physical infection, but saying this cuts you off from people, it cuts you off from God. And so this idea of being poor or a prisoner or blind or the oppressed, Jesus was saying, no, this isn't just about your physical condition. It has affected you spiritually, your relationship with God, because people who were sick or blind or considered um, defective, couldn't, they were too impure to be in the presence of the pure and holy God. And so the religious orders and the religious rules of that day kept them away from God in a sense. It was only so far or so close they could get to God. And so they were affected relationally with God and with each other and with their own view of self. And Jesus says, I have come. In fact, the Spirit of God is on me, has chosen me, has sent me to these people, to the poor, to the prisoners, to the blind and the oppressed. This is what the kingdom of God was actually about. And then he says this, drops the bomb. Today, this scripture is fulfilled. They, they had heard that scripture before. They wouldn't even been have surprised that he chosen to read it. But then it says he folded up, sat down, because that's what you did after you taught from sitting, and they were all looking at him. And then he says, today, that scripture has been fulfilled. And the word fulfilled, we can think they're not completed, begun. 
It was Jesus' announcement, and Luke puts this account at the beginning of his gospel, the beginning of when Jesus starts to do and teach and say many things. He says, the kingdom of God is here. And this is what it looks like. It looks like the spirit of God on Jesus to bring good news to the poor, to the oppressed, to the blind, and to the prisoners. And so it's no surprise. And we say, okay, well, what Jesus said, I, I've been anointed to proclaim this. What do, how does Jesus actually proclaim this? Speaking, healing, casting out demons, and laying hands on them. The rest of the account that was read for you, and really a lot of the rest of Luke's gospel, shows Jesus proclaiming the kingdom. And lest we think this is just about the words that he spoke, although his teaching was actually helping people understand all of what the kingdom of God meant. It was also a, a, a proclamation of doing, of hands-on. And we see accounts of Jesus healing people, everything from a fever to raising the dead, um, to casting out demons. So this was the, the form of oppression, those who were oppressed um, socially, mentally, emotionally, that Jesus was setting them free from the oppression of evil that was in them and around them, setting them free from the, from the sickness that I said had bound them up and affected them, not just physically, but spiritually, relationally, emotionally. And then something so significant, it said he laid hands on all of them. This is one of the most beautiful aspects of the kingdom of God. Because as I said to you, for people who were lepers, and Jesus healed lepers, you know that, but people who had diseases were considered caught off. They had to be away from everyone. So if you had had a kind of infectious disease for years, no one had touched you in years. In fact, there were whole colonies created for lepers because they couldn't be around anyone else. And, so, and because they believed a sick person, if you touch them, you will get contaminated by them. A sick and unclean person will make a clean and healthy person sick and unclean. That's how it worked. I mean, we, like I said, we even know that now. We're afraid of like, getting in contact with sick people. Jesus, the clean and healthy person, touched the sick and unclean person and made them clean and healthy. That's why it's so significant that he says he laid hands on them. It wasn't just a be healed, be healed. It was an embrace. It was a touch for people who were longing, not just for physical healing, but emotional, spiritual, and social restoration. And if this person who represented God was touching them, it was like God was saying, you're not unclean to me that I can't touch you. You're not so sick that I want to cut you off. That may be how the religious world and how your family and all that treats you. It's not how God sees you and treats you. He moves towards you, and by his presence in your life, you are made clean and you are made healthy. That is what the kingdom of God is. It wasn't just Jesus proclaiming it. He was living it and doing it. You see, they, they thought that for change to come in their lives. Truly good news had to be a revolution of empire and government and power and all of the massive systems that had so affected them. And here's Jesus going through and saying, my kingdom has nothing to do with that. It doesn't, it doesn't need that to change. It, it begins here with people and the relationships of how I, how I speak, what I say, and what I do. Bruxy Cavey in his book, Reunion, says something so beautiful about the kingdom of Jesus. He says, kingdoms use force to acquire land and then use force or the threat of force to rule that land as well as to defend it against other kingdoms. The kingdom of Christ also wants to advance, but the land we fight for is the space of separation between one another. That's the land God wants us to acquire. Jesus' followers believe that reconciliation is at the heart of the gospel. 
and we will fight hard to help broken relationships with God and with each other come back together again. This means that our kingdom warfare is not against other people, but for other people, right? And this is the beauty of how the kingdom of Jesus was played out, how it worked itself out. Jesus was closing the space between what things had cut them off from God and from each other. Jesus moved towards them and fights for, in a sense, his warfare, takes the land. So we're actually saying, taking the land between us, the space that separates us because our greatest problem, our greatest need is to be brought back into relationship with God and into relationship with each other. So of course, the kingdom is about bridging the space between, about Jesus going through and doing all of this. And this is the significance of what the kingdom of God actually means to us. See, Jesus said something profound when he came. You know, he said, my kingdom's not of this world. And then he announces and says, today this scripture is fulfilled. And then at other times he says, the kingdom of God is at hand or is among you. And translators actually say that he, there was a double meaning there, that Jesus was not only pointing himself as the, the anointed one, the chosen one, the, the one who was going to bring in God's kingdom, the one that had been uh, uh, you know, prophesied about centuries earlier that I am the one, I am he, I am the chosen one. But he also in saying the kingdom of God is among you was actually saying to the people, it is in you. In other words, this, this thing in you, to, to actually, it, it is actually what God birthed in you when he made you. It's, what, it's why the scriptures say we were made in the image of God, that there is this longing for a kind of kingdom that was put within us. And even though our brokenness and sin has suppressed it, Jesus, as he comes representing that kingdom, also was calling the kingdom of God out of us, saying, it is in me and it is in you, even though it starts small, person to person, even though it doesn't address the powers, the empires, the governments, or whatever, it starts small. He even uses an analogy like it's like a seed or it's like yeast. It's little. It gets, it, the seed dies and falls to the ground. The yeast gets swallowed up in the dough, but it spreads and over time it grows and it eventually changes the world. And friends, this is exactly what has happened. You know, it's interesting, if you look at how our government and how our world and the average person has responded to our pandemic, right? What are the primary concerns? Those who are poor, those who are sick, those who are in need, those who are on the margin. And we go, yes, of course, that's good. Our government's trying to free up money to that, and we should be caring for those who are on the margins, those who are marginal, those who are, and there's a movement towards that. That, friends, is the kingdom of Jesus within us. It is in, even for those people who say, well, I don't believe in Jesus and I don't believe in his kingdom and I don't believe in any of that. The kingdom is still in them. It is from them. Even though our universities and colleges are saying, you know how the world works? It works by natural selection. It works by the, the stronger eliminating the weaker. That's how we came to be. And yet every one of us knows we cannot accept that. Actually, if you're strong or if you're powerful, you have to use your strength. You have to use your power. You have to use your money to help the poor, to help the weak. What is that in them? That's not natural selection. That is the kingdom of Jesus. Even for people who say, well, I don't believe in the kingdom of Jesus. Jesus would say, yeah, but it's in you. You know, I even say to my atheist friends who want to go around the world and help people, or when we were going to Africa, we're raising money for us. I say, I know that's in you. I know that's actually truly what you believe, but it didn't come from your worldview of natural selection of the stronger eliminating the weaker. It's the kingdom of God that was birthed in your heart when you were born that is there in you. Jesus says, it is in you. 
It doesn't come from karma that says if you're sick or you're suffering, you deserve it. You must have done something to deserve it. We don't accept that as a legitimate excuse to say we're not going to help people. Nobody does, right? We all look at it and say, no, if you're a person of wealth or power or strength or even moderately, we should help each other. If you're in government, if you're a leader, oh, we don't want you to look at the people who are sick or suffering and say they probably deserved it. Even for those we'd say, well, they kind of brought that on themselves. We should still help them. That's not from karma. It's from the kingdom of Jesus that like yeast and seed planted 2,000 years ago with a few people as Jesus began to do it, that has spread all over the world. Which means what we can say is, um, sorry, and, and here's a quote from uh, John Orberg in his book um, uh, uh, on Jesus called Who Is This Man? Which if you've never read it and you're sort of going, what is Jesus' impact on history? And you say like, well, how, how has it actually changed the world? It's one of the best reads on it. And in it, he, he describes how this kingdom of Jesus, like seed and yeast, began to change the patterns of the entire Greco-Roman culture a little bit at a time. He says, in the ancient world, slavery was universal. It could happen to anyone and often did. Although conditions varied somewhat, slaves generally had little dignity or worth. A slave was non habens personam, that's Latin for in Roman law, literally not having a person or even not having a face. So that's who slaves were in Greco-Roman culture. Roman masters literally held the power of life and death over slaves. The slaves had no court of appeal. The slaves' pain was so lightly regarded that when they were called to testify, torture could be applied as a matter of course. In other words, you could torture them to make them testify. Beatings and kickings were usually not given to free children precisely because such forms of punishment were reserved for slaves. In the early church, however, a slave might wander in and have one of the masters, one of the rich and powerful, get down on his knees, take a basin and a towel, and wash the feet of one regarded as non-person by the law. In a few short years, the entire system of power and wealth and value was turned on its head. It's actually what the religious leaders said. It's one of the amazing things, most amazing verses in all scripture in the book of Acts, which was Luke's second volume, as they are dealing with these disciples who are bringing the ways of Jesus. They say they're turning the world upside down. This is exactly what happened by the kingdom of Jesus, because we can say this the obvious implication, the gospel isn't just something you believe, it's something you do. It isn't just about saying, oh yes, I believe this about Jesus, about sin and salvation, the kingdom. When I just believe this about Jesus, even what I've said today. No, the obvious implication is to proclaim good news. It is actually something you do as well, not just something you believe. And Howard Snyder in his book says this, church people think about how to get people into the church. Kingdom people think about how to get the church into the world. Church people worry that the world might change the church. Kingdom people work to see the church change the world. This was the message of Jesus. This was how it works. This is how it always works. And yet it starts small. See, you and I, even as we listen to this and say, okay, this is a gospel. We don't just believe it's something we do. We can easily think like the people did in that day. Well, that means government needs to change or systems need to change or even, okay, we need to organize ourselves as a church community. And there's lots of things we do as a church family and that we have done over the years in Vaughan and Bolton and eventually we will in King too that we do collectively. But interestingly, right now, it's kind of hard to do things collectively. We might say, well, how do we do this? How do we begin? And I want to just share with you a couple of stories from our own community of things that are small but are in our power to do. 
Um, this is Cindy and Dan. Cindy's been making masks because masks are needed. And there's lots of stuff about masks and saying, okay, I can do this. I'm home. It's something I can do to actually give to people who need it. And this is something small. It's something that's within your hands to do. It's something that we don't need a community to organize or the government to do something about it. Saying, this is something I can actually take into my own hands. Another person in our community, Kathy Clausen, she sent a, a letter to her neighbors with her picture and her dog, Charlie, is a cutie. Um, and, uh, and it says, dear neighbors on such and such a crescent where she lives. And it was an invitation to them to, to give her a number and to join a WhatsApp group. And this has now formed a community on her street. And this was for, A, if you're in need, if you need help or whatever. And she says, it's amazing to see what has happened with my whole street as we have come together as a community. She says, now when I go walk Charlie, he's like the visible sign of, oh, that's Kathy. And she's kind of our, she's the one. We feel safe knowing she's around. And they've been actually helping each other. Kathy's actually been making sandwiches for one of another churches in our, in our ch uh, church family downtown. And now people in the WhatsApp group are helping her make them. And she says, it's actually changed our whole street. This is like the social glue in the community as we bring the kingdom, the body of Christ, and saying the kingdom can happen right here, right now, right in front of my front door, just simply by putting a WhatsApp group together. Another thing we can actually do is to say to someone, hey, can I pray for you? Um, a little while ago, actually, before the pandemic hit, I had lunch with a friend of mine, Mo. We went to business school together, and uh, she works downtown now, and we reconnected. I asked her if I could tell her the story, and uh, at the end of it, she... Um, you know, there's some job stuff going on in her life, and she just asked for some prayer. And so I prayed for her. And at the end of it, she looked up at me, and she said, you do that for your kids every... And she said, your kids get that every night? In other words, prayer? Friends, people, we do not realize what we have in our hands because we have access to God. And, for, and, and you can send a text to someone, can I pray for you, where you put one hand on them and one hand on God, and they hear you talking to a God you know. Friends, this is within our power to do. It, it may seem, you may seem like, well, it's so small. I can only do this. I only know one person. I only have this. The kingdom of Jesus has always changed the world through small things, the mustard seed, the seed that falls to the ground and dies. In fact, it was Jesus himself who fell to the ground and died, you know, and revolutionized the world through his death and eventual resurrection. It may seem small. It may seem like you're giving yourself away. It may seem like a little death to do this. And yet that is always how the kingdom has worked. Before we kind of, you know, land the plane today and actually have time just to respond to a song that's going to be played for you, we want to take some time for questions. And so as you're sitting and listening even to the song and as you're reflecting on this or as you've been listening to the sermon, if you have questions, by all means, text them in and then we'll take a couple up uh, when we're done. Well, as we close here, I wanted to take a couple of questions and then, uh, and then end our time together. Uh, one of the questions that came in is, if the kingdom of God is within all of us, why do we need to proclaim Jesus as the good news, right? Like, if we've been made with this, isn't this just a matter of simply finding the goodness of the kingdom of God in us and doing good work in the world? And I think this is what um, is so significant. We talk about Jesus as Savior. It's not just what he has saved us from. Because he has saved us from the selfishness and the distrust of God and the gravitational pull towards ourself that is, is in all of us to not only, as we talked about last week, forgive us, but to save us from that and to save us to this. It's, he's actually doing the work of restoring us as humanity to who we were meant to be. 
that actually without Jesus, we cannot fully reach the restorative um, people we were meant to be, that he is the one that addresses all of the things that actually hold us back from being and from expressing the kingdom of God. Another person said it this way, that the, the image of God that we, has been defaced and kind of marked up and marred by sin and brokenness in us. And so Jesus' healing work in us is not, as we said, just to save us for heaven one day, someday, one day, but actually restore us to be the kind of people that then are able to live in the world as God has made us to live. And so it's actually when we live as restored and renewed people who are doing the good work of Jesus in the world that people get to see Jesus in us. And it is fundamentally fully experienced and realized in him. Not just this kingdom work, but the freedom from sin and what we're going to talk about next week as well. And the love of God, that's why all of it is actually found in Jesus. Everything else that we see is just hints and whispers of the people we are meant to be. But Jesus is the one who actually is doing the work of restoring us fully to become that person. Um, another question that came up within that, somewhat related to that, if the scriptures are fulfilled, the sick are healed, the poor of good news, the, Jesus said, why is there still suffering in the world? And this comes back to something we talked about last week, that everything that you read in the New Testament and the work of Jesus has a past, a present, and a future tense to it. That these, these are things in the past that Jesus said it, it was fulfilled. In other words, it began. That's why you have so many accounts of him actually doing this work and showing that he had power to cast out demons, that he had power to proclaim sick people healed, that he had power and authority to forgive sins. It was a, a thing, something that happened in the past. And then the church has exploded with this kind of work. And that's why I referenced who is this man, this book. Uh, John Ortberg notes how like even hospitals and everything, the Red Cross, almost all of the humanitarian organizations in the world that we would name and see have their roots in Jesus and the Jesus movement. Even if today some of them are saying, well, we don't really believe all that stuff about sin and everything anymore. We're just doing the good work. The roots of it are in the work of Jesus. And so the kingdom, when Jesus hit, it has begun, it has continued on into the present. And yet, in a very real way, we say, Lord, this isn't going to get fixed. Any one of us that have been involved in doing this kind of work, you know, the more you do, the more you realize how much there is to do. The more you get in touch with the brokenness of what's going on with those who are poor and oppressed. And like in our churches, we've been getting involved with uh, the human trafficking issue, and you're ministering to survivors. You realize this is a massive global issue. We alone cannot bring this to completion. We cannot usher in heaven on earth. Heaven will never be a place on earth. We can't ultimately fix this broken world, but we begin to work for healing in the broken world we have because we know Jesus is going to return and finish the work. And until then, we don't just go, oh, you know, why do I do this? We're just rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. No, we are Jesus people who are saying, this world can be renewed. The new work has begun. Jesus is going to finish it when he returns. And so where does that leave us as a community of people? You know, where do we go from here? Um, when we said, okay, this is actually more than enough good news to transform our lives and the people around us. I want to leave something with you um, that actually echoes this passage that Jesus read. You know when he said, okay, the Spirit of the Lord is on me. God has chosen me. He has sent me. <laughs> Do you know what Jesus also said to his followers? He said, just as the Father has sent me, so I send you. And so I want to, in a very real way, and I think which is very true to Scripture, rephrase that. Do you know that the Spirit of the Lord is on you? Because he has anointed you to bring good news. 
The scriptures say that the same spirit that was in Jesus, the spirit of Christ himself, is in us, is in me, is in you. This is the gift. You know, with the image of God, it was the hints and whispers of the kingdom in us. The spirit, when we receive Jesus, comes into us, and the same spirit, just like Jesus could stand up there and say, this is, the spirit of God is on me, and he was the anointed one. But then he says to, to you and to me, yeah, but my, my spirit is actually in you and on you and has chosen you to bring good news. This is the truth of what the gospel of the kingdom proclaims. And so let me ask you, do you believe it? Do you believe it? If the gospel isn't just something you believe, it's something you do. Here's how I want to end today. I want to ask you, and wherever you are, you're going to say this out loud, okay? If you're by yourself, you're going to text someone said I said it, or you're going to say it to the people around you. The Spirit of the Lord is on you because he has chosen you to bring good news. Do you believe it? And you're going to say, I do. See that little play on words? I do. I will do it. And so here, here we go. The Spirit of the Lord is on you and on me because he has chosen you and chosen me to bring good news. Do you believe it? I do. May God bless you this week as you look for in the very small things in front of you, the little things, the seed, the yeast that seems small, and say, okay, the gospel isn't just something I believe, it's something I do. I can't change everything. I don't know how long this is going to persist, and even after this, but I can do this. And may God bring you an opportunity to bring his kingdom to the place where you are.